All right, I'll just say, for live stream, everybody raise their hand. Everyone's doing it. It's incredible. Join the club. Um, it's just good. It's good to like uh, just dive into it and be in the story. It is a grand, I mean, the whole sc of scripture is a grand narrative, but especially in Exodus, it's a really good um, story. But last week, if you missed it, please go podcast it. Um, Randall taught on chapter 14. Uh, we finished one of the most famous biblical narratives you can know if you grew up in church. This was like top three probably stories that you learned. Um, God, uh, God had his people cross the Red Sea in a miraculous way. God freed his people from slavery, and as they were about to lose hope once more, remember where they were right out of Egypt, but then the waters came up and they looked back and Pharaoh was chasing back after them after he changed his mind. After their seeing their lives flash before their eyes, he through Moses parts the Red Sea and has them walk through on dry land. Like just absolute mind-blowing miracle. And as Pharaoh's army pursues the Israelites relentlessly, God has Moses then stretch his arm back out and watch the waves crash down onto the Egyptians, ending their pursuit. The people are finally free at last. So chapter 14 ends with this, verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Like, this has to be a surreal moment. Like, just mere maybe days before, they were enslaved to these people, and now they're completely free. Like, like what a moment. I mean, even if you weren't running for your life, the parting of the seas would have been such a life-changing moment. Obviously, incredibly life-changing for this Egyptian army. But it's interesting language in chapter 14 that it ends here. Do you see that? Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. This is an incredible way that God works. The power of God is just as much for the Israelites as it was against the enemies. You see that? So how do you respond to such a moment? What do you do to capture what has happened? So a hobby that I have picked up recently um, that I just love so much is, is listening to books. So I got on the Audible train. Anyone else on Audible? Yeah, a couple people. It's, it's great. I, I drive my family crazy because I typically have like an earbud in, just one. So I'm like half there, but mostly not, you know? Um, and it's incredible, and so, and I've learned that I'm a kinesthetic learner, which is just a fancy way of saying I, I like to do things, and I learn better, so whether I'm, if I'm doing yard work, I want to put a book in, I'll just remember it better, if I shoot basketball hoops, or just clean the house, or whatever, I just learn better, I, if I sit and read, I will fall asleep, <laughs> so Jesse is, cover your ears, I love books. Um, but I listen to a lot of audible books. Obviously, I geek out. I love theology books. I love church books. I love listening and just learning and growing what it means to be the church. But my heart, my hobby, I love, like, action and adventure kind of fantasy books. Like, I love, like, the Lord of the Rings genre. Anything to do with knights and swords and dragons. I'm basically a child, and it's amazing. Um, but one thing in common with all those books in that era and the research of the actual kind of medieval time era is in the courts of kings and queens, there's almost always some sort of minstrel or bard or glee man or somebody that gets to, through music, 
follow the traveling companion and the main storyline and then put to song what has happened to kind of champion in a song that'll be passed down for generations what has happened. And the idea is simple, to not forget what has happened here. That's why they do it. That's why bards are trained. That's why they were there to sing of the glories and to not let things that have happened just waste away. And if there was no real account that ha- would happen in these stories, then it would just get fabricated. You know, before, you know, the Egyptians were crushed by the water, but then if nobody counts it, you know, you didn't, you didn't know you heard about the dragons that came in and ate them and like all this crazy, you know, you can make up whatever you want. So to have someone that is, that is not just myth and legend, but is actually retelling a story. But the bard was a, it's a sacred position and always has been. And there often were stories that children grew up by knowing by heart because of these songs. And they were taken kind of in awe of what then these songs would do to your imagination. So today we're talking about an entire nation enslaved for over 400 years. Very, very few of them, if any, can read, right? So if the stories of Abraham passing down weren't taught to them, Um, with words, then how would they know this God they were supposed to now go and serve? So we get to this miraculous moment where the nation of Israel finally stops running away from Egypt. They take a deep collective breath. They turn around and they find themselves on the other side of the sea with no Egyptians in sight. Like Moses would not forget what happened here. He takes up the mantle of the bard, and he begins what is known as the Song of the Sea. It's believed to be the first recorded praise and worship song in all of Scripture, right? And today we're going to dive into it. There's some incredible stuff in here. Of course you can read it, and it's good on its own, but there's some incredible stuff. Let's dive in. Verse 1, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously quick word, the the Lord has triumphed. This was his victory. To start out this song by saying, hey, we didn't do it. The Lord triumphed. We didn't outrun the Egyptians. We didn't outclever the Egyptians and find a secret pathway. The Lord, this was his victory. We're alive because of the Lord. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This great king of Egypt to be feared and what most people thought was to be worshipped, taken down and thrown into the sea. Now, this is really cool. Take a second with me. We're not going to dive deep into this because it's a total rabbit hole and it's awesome. But biblically, sea, okay, anytime like water or sea is used, it's often an analogy for chaos and evil. It's just kind of this idea that like the sea is untamed, it's wild, it's chaotic, it's crazy, this kind of thing. And time and time again, if you look through the scriptures, the evil that is encountered is often consumed by itself. I have just three examples, there's lots. But just think with me, or you can turn if you want, but Genesis chapter 6, back to the flood with Noah's time. Six, uh, Genesis 6 verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what happens? Waters rise up and cover the earth. You could say chaos reigned and it destroyed everything, but God saves a remnant to redeem and restore. In the New Testament, flash forward, Jesus Jesus is on the earth here. Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man, and when he drives the demons out of the man, they go into these pigs. And what happens? Mark chapter 5, verse 13. 
And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Jesus, later on, encounters a terrible storm in the middle of a boat and shows his power over the chaotic waters. Mark 4, 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Of course, there's like so much more to go. If, you, if we tracked sea throughout the scriptures or water, this is huge. But why water and sea? Like, God could have taken out the Egyptians with any of the plagues that he has sent to this point, but it, it seems like water, sea, is, is a point. For Pharaoh, the gods and the power that he entrusted his life to consumed him. It killed him. It took, took over his life. It took his life. The chaos won. You can't tame it. But for the Israelites, the God and power they trusted in, they can't tame either. It's totally untamable, but it gave them life. Isn't that interesting? The evil consumed itself, but the true God gave life. Now verse 2, the Lord, uh, back in, in our passage of Exodus 15, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's guide, and I will exalt him. Such beautiful words. The Lord is my strength. Not, interestingly, the Lord gave me strength, or the Lord gives me strength, but that the Lord is the strength in me. In one of his um, really famous sermons, uh, C.H. Spurgeon uh, is quoted to say, How strong is a believer? He says, I say it with reverence, as strong as God. Not saying it's something you can wield, you don't become God, but if it's God's strength through you, it can, it's, it's so big, right? How can you number it? Moses is also acknowledging that this was not the first time God has showed up for his people. My father's God is a reference to Abraham and a nod to God's continual resume of faithfulness for his people. And as we just saw, that this faithful God, he's not a passive God in what he just did. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea the floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. That stone, you know, an analogy there could probably refer to the hardened heart of Pharaoh, right? Just it was this heavy weight that he had, um, and by association, all the Egyptians that followed him that just sunk into the water. And Moses goes into a grander narrative of God's might in general. Verse 6, he says, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. The language here, it's so visceral and, and like large. I don't know, I was trying to think of a better way, but it's just so big, right? For so long, Egypt has been this huge empire. Pharaoh was this mighty, untouchable God-man right? Larger than life. And then look how Moses brilliantly sings in a way that makes God so much bigger. Look at this, verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. I just take a second and picture God's nostrils. 
Just picture that, okay? Like, at, at first, it's like, okay, Moses, could you have come up with something a little bit more grand? Like, nobody, that's not their best feature on anybody, you know? But after reflection, like, think of it. The bigness of the wind that God sent that drove the waters apart, coming from just a nostril, like, how big is this God compared to, like, these little Egyptian bullies with sharp sticks, you know, walking around? And he calls out the pride of Pharaoh and his men. Verse 9, he says, The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoils, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. But God opposes the proud. Right, we know this. Verse 10, You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters like pieces of lead in mighty water. No chance of survival. Never had a chance of winning against this great and mighty God. So verse 11, it's the same conclusion we're at. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. They didn't just drown but from earth they came into earth, or in earth they returned. Now back to this kind of barred language. So far the champion that's being sung about, it's not Moses, it's not Aaron, it's not any Israelite, but solely of God. This God, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deed, doing wonders. This is what, who he wants to champion in his song, which is so beautiful. Now if you notice the first 12 verses... Whole, the whole song is 18 verses, the whole 12 verses, Moses sings the narrative of what God has done to his enemies and how he has delivered his people. And the last six verses takes a little turn, and he starts to look ahead at what's now the future for this freed people. Let's take a look. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You are guiding your people to your holy abode. Again, the memory of this moment cemented into song is not you lead your people into what they finally deserve now, right? It's guiding your people to you. The NIV translates that holy abode, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The destination has always been God's presence with his people, not just what he can do for you to make your life better. And Moses gets this, and he's praise and worship song. He's saying this right now. That's what they can hope in. But it's interesting that Mount Moses now, he turns, and the song starts to feel a little bit like a battle cry. He starts to predict what the powers of the land will start to do and feel when they hear of this victory. Verse 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Like he just named all the main territories of what was made up of, of the promised land that they were about to go to. It's kind of like a ye be warned type of song, right? This song for the Israelites was for them, but it was, of course, going to spread throughout the land. In fact, here's an example. Forty-some years later, the whole Exodus narrative over, we get to the next leader, Joshua, right after Moses, and we get to the story of the sacking of Jericho. This is about 40 years later. And the land of Canaan 
And just before it all goes down, Rahab the prostitute, if you remember this story, she meets with the spies from Joshua's men, and she says this, Joshua 2, 9-10, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Forty years later, they're still terrified of these people and what God has done. The praises of God, they're not only warranted because of what God has done, they also proceed his coming victories. The people of God praise God for what he's done and what he will accomplish. We'll talk about that in a second some more. Verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Tell your people, O Lord, pass by. Tell the people pass by whom you have purchased. Like, honestly, I don't know if you catch it, like, shots fired (laughs) from Moses here. Like, our enemies will basically be like statues. It won't even matter, right? And as we'll see kind of further down in Exodus, this starts some battles, because you can imagine being an enemy and hearing that. (laughs) You know, you might get a little bit mad. But hey, if you're going to talk your talk, then Moses is going to do what he do, you know? So verse 17, it says, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Like the beautiful ending to the song, culminating in God's presence in his sanctuary with his people. Now take a step back for a second. Think of this story also allegorically, okay? Think of God's people were at a point of absolute desperation, certain death. Now to be on the other side of the waters, to no credit of their own, has some implications. First, watching their former life and masters drown in the water, there would be destruction now gone for eternity. Next, they're passing through the waters as a baptism of sorts from the way of death to new life, now to be in a position to have the beginning experience of total surrender to God and what's in front of them. If you had to put spiritual conversion into a narrative, could you have done it any better? <laughs> you know? Like, what an incredible way to, uh, to true story, but also narratively show what is going on and how God saves. Now, this is really fascinating how this passage ends. After the song, we're suddenly introduced to Aaron's sister, Miriam, in a really important way. And I say Aaron's sister because that's how she's uh, introduced. Isn't it interesting? Moses, remember, he's part of that family. He doesn't say my sister, Miriam, but Aaron's sister, Miriam, probably linking her to the proper priestly line of Aaron, and he feels a little bit outside of that. But let's look at this. This is really cool. Verse 20, Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So we don't know much at this point about Miriam at all. But this is really, really cool, actually. First, Miriam, that, that Miriam, a prominent leader in Israel, was so moved by the song that she turned and taught all the women. Now, why is this significant? She recognized that this song was not just for this moment, 
right? She recognized that for generations after generations after generations to come, the people of God need to know this story. She took it upon herself. In, in this patriarchal and tribal culture that was just their culture at the time, the women primarily raised the family. So for her to go and say, hey, we need to know this by heart, not, yes, for our benefit, but to teach our children. What that would do in teaching the children generation after generation, it would carry this from a moment to a lifestyle. It would carry this from just a cool event to an actual identity piece in their life. Every Israelite from then on, uh, whether they were born that way or grafted in to that family, would know by heart the story of the great divine deliverance of God's people at the sea. That's incredible for someone to take the initiative to do that. But also, it goes deeper. Let's take a quick look at Miriam's character development. If you remember way back in Exodus chapter 2, and most scholars believe this is the same Miriam uh, that was the sister of Moses. Um, but the Pharaoh made a decree to take out all the male babies and do what? Throw them in the Nile, drown them in the water. Moses' mother defied the decree, saved her baby boy in a basket, and who followed the boy down the river? His sister Miriam. Look at this, chapter 2, verse 4. The boy floated along in the river, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Then, as the boy was found by Pharaoh's daughter, uh, Miriam is the one to go to her, and I just love it. I don't know quite how old she is, but in just her cunning, like, spunkiness, she comes over and says, hey, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women and to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, yeah, go. So the girl went and caught the child's mother. Like, that, go, you go, sis. Like, that's super rad. Now, fast forward 80-ish years later, okay, just over 80 years, just sit in the magnitude of this moment with Miriam. Miriam is standing on the other side of the river with her family. Her brother Aaron on one side she grew up with, her long-lost brother Moses on the other side, who, who she helped save from drowning as an infant, watching her enslavers being crushed by the water in front of her. Her family was saved. The justice of God here is something that only God could have done. Can you imagine her angst, maybe her anger at, at the Egyptians? All the justice that she wanted to probably do all of her life, and now to see this moment happen. Now, it goes a little bit step further. There's a, there's a lot of cool stuff, but one more thing. Um, anytime the narrative, especially in the Old Testament, is broken up suddenly by a song, it's also often uh, prophetic of what will happen. So let's look at this. Take that awe feeling through Miriam and Moses and Aaron, and we get to the last book of our Bible, of our English Bible, literally thousands of years after this Exodus event, and John is having this revelation from Jesus, and we get to chapter 15. Now, we're not going to exegete it. We're not going to look at it. There's some plagues and angels and stuff mentioned. Just, just read it for what it is. Um, but I want to read chapter 15 to you. I saw, this is 1 through uh, 4, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is complete. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. 
they held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Like what Miriam is able to do here in Exodus in the song and dance is prophetic of the victory dance of all of God's people. When God's wrath is on evil is finally complete and there is finally no more death. Like this is the dance that we get to share in. In 2021, in a church in Albany, Oregon, we get to share in this victory dance. If you trust in God and what he will do, this is our victory dance. It's incredible. And to close out today, I want to go back to the structure of the song. Remember, the first 12 verses are what God has done, then the last six are what God will do. And this is the practice of looking back at God's faithfulness so that the moving forward is full of confidence, not in our strength, but in a God who is faithful time and time and time again. So we today, in confidence, can join in with this song back in verse 2 and say, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. So just take a second before we do this. Just take a second and examine where you're at. Examine your heart. Examine your mind. Where have there been moments of God's saving grace in your life that you can look back on? Are they stain moments? Or have they sparked a new way of life? Are they staying just moments or like this where they don't want to forget what has happened? Are they sparking a new way of life moving forward? Does your life live out of this dance of victory in your part in God's story? Because it's crucial and it's very important. This practice of remembering to move forward is exactly what we are doing today. This is why we care so much about this text and these words God has for us. It's to tell us about him, about his heart, about who he is, and we get to respond to surrendering to that narrative of who God is and then who he says we are. And then we live into the life that he has for us, knowing that it is his strength in our weaknesses. And honestly, I feel like it would be wrong to do anything less than Miriam's response, can I please get a tambourine? Anybody. I just, please, somebody, right? But let's respond to this like they did, okay? What has happened here, the victory over death, the, the freedom from enslavement here. And we get to do that today. We get to do that. We get to sing as loud as you want, right? We get to sing as loud as you want. We get to praise our God for who he is as we look back at these stories so that we can move forward and not make them just events or moments, but a lifestyle of following our God we get to pray to our God. He gives us access to him. This great God that blows wind out of his nostrils, apparently, is like, hey, I want to talk to you. I want to be with you. I want relationship with you. We get to give the things that, that hold us back, and often Jesus says it's money. Often Jesus says it's the treasures that hold us and say, hey, give it to the people and then go serve my city. And I would think most importantly, we get to receive the communion as the perfect example of remembering what has happened so that we can live forward, right? Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, gets his closest disciples together. He says, guys, you're not going to understand this right now, but you will one day. This bread, this is, represents my body, and it's going to be broken for you. 
But it's gonna, but it's, and, and then this is my, this cup of wine is my blood. We don't have wine, we have grape juice here. But this will be like my blood, right? And then when you drink of it, remember that this is going to pay for the sins. This is going to be able to wash you clean if you follow me. And we get to remember that, partake in that, so that we can move forward in this lifestyle of following Jesus.